My name is Scott McMillan. I'm the Managing Director of Invictus Energy. Uh, we are listed on the ASX. The ticker is IBZ. We're an oil and gas exploration company focused on Zimbabwe. Our primary asset is the uh, Kabora Bassa project, which is located in the north of Zimbabwe. Uh, we've just completed an infill 2D seismic campaign uh, and acquired 840 kilometers of data and preparing for a high impact basin opening drilling campaign in the first half of 2022. The Muzurabani prospect uh, is uh, an elephant sized prospect, uh, 8.2 TCF and 247 million barrels of, of condensate, which is one of the largest uh, conventional targets going around globally. So a very exciting period ahead for the company. Scott, lovely to meet you. Thanks for coming on the show. We're going to talk oil and gas today. Um, we better kind of break a few things down because there's there's a lot of moving parts, as you say. It's potentially a very big um, uh, project, big asset for, for sure. Uh, give us a, a bit about your background. Sure. I'm a, I'm, I've got a technical background. I'm a reservoir engineer. Uh, I worked for uh, a long time in Australia, over here where, where we're based. Um, for Woodside, who's uh, Australia's largest oil and gas producer, uh, and then also for um, uh, Armour Energy, who we helped uh, navigate into Uganda, uh, and then most recently before Invictus at AWE, and I was involved in the White Sea uh, Gas Discovery, which is the, the largest onshore gas discovery in Australia for the last 40 years, and that was um, fantastic to be a part of and great uh, to develop, and ended up ultimately being brought out by um, Mitsui and now being developed. Okay, so you're Zimbabwean. Um, you worked in Africa and and and, and in the industry, reservoir engineer. Um, have you run a public company before? No. So this is my first time uh, public company seat, um, but obviously worked for publicly listed companies uh, before. Right. Okay. How are you finding it? Uh, look, it's been um, it's it's been an interesting mix. Uh, I think you know when you're running a public company, you've got um, a few different hats that you have to wear. Um, you know, not only do you have to look after the project, which you're used to doing uh, as a technical person or, or in a managerial role, but you've got, you know, the, the, the capital market side um, is, is equally uh, important. And so, you know, the, the, the measurement tends to be the share price, and, and, uh, but that's not always the be all and end all. It, um, you know, it doesn't matter how well or how poorly things are going, that's, that's how you're judged. So that's um, sometimes can be frustrating, but also sometimes very rewarding. When you know when, um, when when things are going well. Okay, well, uh, good luck with this one. Um, let's talk about a few things that people might be disconcerted about. So we've got lots of natural resource investors um, on the on this channel and, and and viewers elsewhere, subscribers elsewhere. Oil and gas has not had an easy time over over the over the past few years. Things are looking up again as the price of uh, oil recovers. But Zimbabwe, that's a tough place to do business, isn't it? Yes, it has been. Uh, you know, historically, it has been a very, very tough place to do business. Um, I guess the differentiator for, for Invictus, though, is we've got a very, very strong local management team. Um, as you mentioned previously, uh, I'm Zimbabwe. My family has been been there for, for five generations. We know the jurisdiction very, very well. Uh, our country manager, Brent Barber, uh, actually ran Mobile's exploration campaign, the last oil company that explored in Zimbabwe in, uh, in 1990. And then uh, on our board uh, that we appointed earlier this year uh, as part of a strategic uh, investor that we brought in, uh, Zimbabwean strategic investor, is Joe Matizwa, who's um, absolutely fantastic. He, um, a heavyweight in business there, ran uh, Delta Corporation, which is Zimbabwe's largest um, listed company. Uh, he sits on the Presidential Advisory Council, uh, was a former uh, member of the Reserve Bank Board, and so he's very, very uh, well averse to doing business in Zimbabwe as well. So we've got a good mix of, of corporate and, and technical expertise involved 
with the project. Right. So lots of experienced people um, on the board, on your operational team. Um, but the, the, the question remains, is it easy to do business in Zimbabwe? Is it uh, slower? Should we expect longer lead times or have things changed with the new government? Things have changed considerably with the new government. Um, I've been involved with this project now for nearly 10 years. And, you know, up until the change of government, we struggled to get it off the ground, to be perfectly honest. Um, we couldn't get the approvals uh, for the permits made. And it, because of the investment laws and, and, and um, environment there, it was uh, impossible to do business there. And, and even if we had the permit, we wouldn't have been able to progress the project because it was inhospitable for investment. With the new government coming in, uh, they've, they've changed. They have brought in some um, some great reforms that have now opened the country up to do business again. So they've rescinded the Indigenisation and Empowerment Act, which mandated majority government um, ownership of, of businesses. Um, they brought in other uh, attractive measures, such as special economic zones, uh, which treat you um, and, uh, basically as an independent state within the country and provide a range of fiscal and non-fiscal incentives. And most recently, we signed uh, a petroleum exploration development and production agreement with government, which lays out a clear framework and pathway, uh, pathway for us to develop the asset on success. So they, they have opened the country for business, they're putting in the right reforms and allowing us to get on with the project. So it certainly has changed. Right. So you're after um, gas and condensate, is that right? Look, we, we believe that it's most likely to be gas and condensate from all, those, all, all the, the geotechnical work that we've done, from the geochemical sampling we've done. The source rock, and, and there's, two, there's two main source intervals, there's the Permian interval and Triassic interval, are capable of generating both oil and gas. We believe from the modelling that we've done that the source rock has likely passed through the oil window and into the gas condensate window in the, in the main fairway, but there's likely to be oil and gas generated uh, in the basin. And in fact, we've recovered live oil at the surface from some of the, um, uh, the permian samples that we, that we took in, um, in July 2019 in our field sampling program. So it can generate both, but we believe it's probably more like a big gas condensate play. Okay, so there's a lot of operators in country, actually, which is, I guess, a testament to how things have have changed, uh, the fact that they're still there. Does that suggest that there's an infrastructure as well? Because once, you, once you've found it, you've got to move it uh, somewhere. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, because you're, you're, you're down there in southern Africa, inland. So it's, it's, on, it's on land, but it's also inland. Where does it go? Yeah, and, and you've touched on a very good point here. Often, uh, particularly with gas developments, you, you need a couple of things, and that's infrastructure and, and also the market, more importantly. Um, Zimbabwe, fortunately, has both. Now, we've already signed a gas sale MOU with, with two uh, customers, one of them, several chemicals who uh, manufacture fertilizer, and uh, they import uh, ammonia gas from South Africa by rail. And the second one is uh, Tatanga Energy, who are a gas, gas power developer in, in West Africa and looking to enter into the Zimbabwe market. So the market side of things is, is, is buoyant. That's 1.2 trillion cubic feet over 20 years um, for those agreements. So that is substantial, will underpin the project from a domestic point of view. On the infrastructure side, again, very, very well developed in Zimbabwe and, um, and still good infrastructure by, you know, by regional standards. So what we've managed to build into our agreements with government is uh, with, with the, the, the paper agreement I mentioned earlier 
is the easement and access rights for pipelines um, that come along with it. And to get it from where we are in, in Zimbabwe into our, our market with, with Sable and Tatanga, not very far. So Sable are circa 350Ks from, from where we are. Um, and you've got uh, where Tatanga will place their facility. And, and again, we're talking in a success case here. Uh, we're 100 kilometers away from the major interconnectors for the Southern Africa power pool. So right. that enables the export of electricity anywhere from Cape Town all the way through to the Congo. So we see that as the first two building blocks of any development, because if we discover eight TCF or four TCF of gas, it's an awful lot, which will require more than those projects. Absolutely. But let, yeah. let, let, if I might, because I, I don't want to get lost in, in, in too much data initially. So with those two, two MOUs, are they binding? Have they given you money? Who pays for the connection? Who's paying? Because 350 kilometers, I don't know what it costs per kilometer, but that sounds like an awful lot of money. So look, by uh, firstly on the MOU, so so they they do have a couple of CPs. Obviously, the the major one being uh, making a commercial discovery and, and, and proceeding with the development. So that'll be the first step. Um, but because they're sophisticated gas buyers, they understand the risk. Um, you know, Sable were producing ammonia by electrolysis and they were the original green uh, hydrogen company in the world and, and the only ones to really have done it at scale uh, with 100 megawatts of, of um, uh, electrolysis that they that they use from hydroelectric power. That became too expensive in 2014 and they've been importing ammonia gas since then. And they came to us, um, they've been searching for a source of gas uh, for a long time and they came to us and they said, look, we understand it's exploration phase, but we want to be at the front of the queue if you make a discovery. So uh, putting the gas sale MOUs together has been actually a very, very simple and easy process because they are sophisticated gas buyers and they know what they're getting themselves into. So we're not too concerned in that phase because there are frankly no other suppliers. So they've also got the backing of, of um, Africa Finance Corporation, Africa Development Bank, because they are the only manufacturers of fertilizer in the country. So that you know the pricing. The pricing is um, works well on both ends, and you know so this is something that will be that'll get off the ground. Going to the pipeline question. Well, actually, um, just just on the stick with the kind of con conditional component, which was um, the assumption there is that they have not paid you money up front because there are conditions attached to the MOU. Yes. Is that right? Okay, just want to be clear. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. on the pipeline front, we, who, who would it be incumbent on? You getting contracts and raising money from whether African Development Bank, et cetera? Yeah, so so Zimbabwe has already a number of, of, of pipelines and they've got competing pipeline proposals for, uh, for developing um, infrastructure around the region because it's such a crucial um, piece of infrastructure. Zimbabwe serves as the gateway for a lot of the interior where, where you've got fuel imported from Baira into Harare and then distributed by uh, by road. And so uh, the initial pipeline is too small, but you've got other uh, competing pipelines to um, you know to bring to bring product to market. You've got some developers looking at gas from the Ravuma Basin in northern Mozambique, trying to bring it down to South Africa, which is 2,600 kilometers distance. So you know, 350 is is shorter than most pipe runs. In, in the rest of the region and not, not a huge undertaking. Yeah, but you're an $80 million company. So in that context, it is expensive. So I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to work out, how, well, I know, 
I would like you to explain to people how it works sure. that you you can you fund those things and what sorts of quantum are we talking about? Because people would be nervous, yeah. saying, "Wow, if it's a million bucks per kilometer, whoa, that's that's expensive." So give give some sense of the numbers and how yeah. it works. Yeah, yeah. So first, firstly, that, that's really a midstream business, and that's not our focus. So this would be a third party developed pipeline, and probably the best example that I can that I can give you would be how the domestic gas industry is developed in Tanzania. So you've got um, two pretty marginal uh, or the smaller fields, Songo Songo and Nazi Bay. Those are sort of 300 to 500 BCF uh, fields. Those pipelines were funded by a consortium of the IFC, uh, International Finance Corporation, Africa Finance Corporation, and, um, and a Chinese group who built 450 kilometers of, of, um, of pipeline to take it up to Dar es Salaam. And those started off at relatively modest volumes of 20 million cubic feet a day. That market has now developed to 200 million cubic feet a day because the industrial demand, uh, one for power and, and two for gas for industrial processes has, has grown. And institutions like um, the Africa Finance Corporation are happy to fund those and they become um, you know, almost annuity type uh, assets for governments and, and, and those midstream players because they're backed by uh, blue chip customers and Sable Chemicals is one of those because they've got a long track record. And so, that uh, you know, again, that's not something that we have a huge amount of concern. Uh, right. So, so tell me how it works, because I, I, I did some work in South Sudan and you know, where all the oil was, but the pipeline was through Sudan. They controlled the pipeline to the mm -hmm. port, right? So it, in this sense, tell me more about these kind of these, whether, whether it's whoever it's funded by, you know, IFC, African Bank, et cetera, who controls that? And does that affect your ability to make margin going down the line? How do the contracts work? So the contracts will be take or pay and the customers will pay the, the, the tariff. And how's, how's, that, how's that set? How do you can make sure that, you know, you're not seeing sort of increasing costs going, coming, coming down the line, as it were? So, look, you've got you've got relatively standard tariff rates in in, in, in the region, and some good examples are the the, um, the pipeline between Mozambique and South Africa uh, that's set by um, uh, that's the Ronco pipeline that's eight hundred and sixty kilometers that that is South Africa's sole, and we haven't we haven't really got into now the the sort of where we ultimately see this this project going, um, which is. Uh, into South Africa, which is a major uh, gas demand center, and, and that Ronco pipeline, well-established um, transit fees uh, through there, and, and, and that, that's benchmarked um, and fairly typical all around the region. Okay, good example. Um, better talk about the asset. <laughs> I haven't even talked about the asset yet. Um, yeah. Okay, so you, I've saw some press releases. You've been doing a lot of um, two, 2D seismic. I guess that's cheaper than 3D, and you can cover a lot more uh, ground. But tell people why 2D is good enough to find what it is that you think you're after. Sure. So, so 2D onshore um, for the types of targets. We, we, we're targeting massive uh, structural targets. So we're not trying to find a subtle stratigraphic trap. These are big. And, and if you have a look at, at some of the seismic images, that Muzurabani anticline is an absolutely enormous feature. It's 200 square kilometers under closure. Uh, and um, and that's why the numbers are so big, because it's a, this big feature. So you don't need 3D to identify a structure like that. Um, and 2D onshore in, in the exploration phase really is, is good enough, because you shouldn't, you shouldn't be trying to find something that you need 3D to define at this 
early stage. So we're focused on, on, on the structural uh, structural traps and we see a number of different types of these structural traps around. So we've refined the previous mo mobile grid, which was around about 15 kilometer spacing down to about 1.7 kilometer spacing. So that's more than sufficient to define uh, you know, the types of targets and, and they need to be commercial size targets as well. Uh, for right. us to chase. The numbers you've been throwing at me, it's more than commercial. <laughs> you've, you've gone way past yeah. that mark. Um, so just wonder, and again, for a small company, how you go about doing it, because you, you can, and quite frankly, typically when, when we've been looking at this, anything over one TCF, I'm like, okay, that's a starter for me. You're way past that. So how do you get the balance between saying, trying to prove out, oh, this thing is one of the world's large, largest uh, basins and it's all under our control um, and look what we can recover and getting cheap finance to get the thing started to prove what you want to do? So I guess that's a factor of what your business model is here. So we, maybe you want to describe that for us. What is the model? So the model for us is to go out and, and we'll be drilling the first uh, wells in the basin. This is complete wildcat territory. So we need to go out, firstly, make a valid test of the petroleum system to make sure that we've tested all the elements. But also, with the size of the structures we're testing, we need to get above that sort of minimum economic field size um, from the first one or two wells to then um, carry on um, in that basin. So if you're not, you know, if, if, if that doesn't turn out, then we've got to go look somewhere else, to right. be honest. But... We're confident in the size of the targets that we've got. That if if um, you know if we are successful, then they will be commercial and it'll get developed. Right. So maybe maybe explain. I, I do want to explore that further, if I may. But first, maybe just explain to people how it moves from all of this two D work that you're doing, interpreting it, and being able to put a number on it. Just for, again for the uninitiated. Sure. So with two D seismic, um, we've acquired the sinful grid, so that will map uh, the subsurface, and we have got about five prospective horizons uh, within the basin. So five, five, five separate uh, stratigraphic geological sections that we're targeting. The main one that we're looking at is the upper Angua. And we think that is the key, and this is a low Triassic unit, it's the key uh, and the key differentiator in the successful basins in this part of the world is presence of source rock in the lower Triassic. And that's where the big discoveries in Madagascar have come from, the Bitamaloga and uh, tar sands and some heavy oil, as well as uh, Caleb and Halala in, in Ethiopia. Most have chased the Permian. We're interested in the, in the Triassic. And the way we progress that now, we've got the previous mobile data, which um, continues a little bit further to the west of our license area, but outcrops, uh, uh, but ties into the outcrop of where the stratigraphy comes to surface. So we can track um, those geological horizons all the way through into the subsurface with the seismic. We then um, map the traps or the potential traps. And from the, uh, from the, the area of it, the estimated thickness of the, of the formations that we're targeting, we can estimate then what, what, what the potential sizes of, of those prospects are. So we're going through the process now of, of um, having that seismic data uh, processed by, by EarthSignal in, in Canada. The early signs are very, very good. We're seeing some, um, some very, very interesting amplitude anomalies uh, that conform to structure, what you want to see from, from your seismic data. Uh, and once that is fully processed, 
will um, will interpret the whole data set and then come up with an updated prospect and lead portfolio. So we've identified this big Inzorabani structure. We're expecting to see a lot more though with that with that infill seismic grid. Great. And so again, for slightly for the uninitiated here, said so, said so we were going to maybe do this, which which is um, where's the you produce some numbers. You've outsourced some of it. Um, where's the kind of regulated reporting on that data and interpretation so the market can go? Do you know what? This has been validated. Yeah, and and yeah. So and, and that's a very important point. So we because we are a, a small junior company, we're not just going to publish internal numbers. Some do. We you know when, when we first started with this with this project and we put out our first prospective resource estimate. We knew it was big, and it's so big that we thought it was very important to get an independent assessment of it done. So we had two done. So we had one done by Netherlands Sewell and Associates, uh, you know, leading US um, petroleum estimator, and then also GTEC uh, Group out of the UK, uh, who are listed over there on the AIM, and they helped us also with the um, the reprocessing of the gravity and the aeromagnetic data that we integrated into the into the seismic interpretation. So they provided a second a second independent estimate as well. And it, with our internal estimates, NSAI and GTEx, they're, they're all there and thereabouts. So um, our numbers are independent and and, and audited and um, done according to the what's known as the SPE Society of Petroleum Engineers. Uh, PRMS, the Petroleum Resource Management System, so like the jaw code in minerals. Right. Okay. So that's good for people to understand that. Okay. So you you've, you've been doing doing that work. You've got some historic data which you've in, incorporated into your numbers. Um, you talked about in the first half next year starting to drill on targets. So what again have you targeted? What are you expecting to find? What are you looking for? Yeah. So part of the seismic processing. Um, work and interpretation will be to mature the location of the Muzorabani 1 well. So identify the exact drilling location and do the detailed drilling planning. So we're, we're, what we're trying to do, because we've got five stack targets, we want to make sure that we hit all of those in the right spot to maximize our chances of, of making a discovery. So that's the first, um, the first point. The second one is we're also trying to identify additional prospectivity within the acreage and from the seismic data that we've acquired and and, and the early science look encouraging so we we're aiming for a two well program next year so drill the very very big uh prospect which you know if that comes in it'll be um one of the largest uh conventional discoveries in, in any year that it's drilled uh but then also maturing some of these other um still commercial but um but but uh, potentially smaller that will create some nice running room for us on, on, on success as well. As a public company, you can't afford to get it wrong. You don't need a duster on the first hole or the second hole. You've got to go for the most likelihood of success because it sets the tone for the narrative and the communication to the market. It says we know what we're doing. So again, does that affect the way, does that, affect the way that you go about doing this? Because when I speak, it, speak it, to... It when I speak to engineers and geologists, they say, well, the most sensible way, systematic way is to kind of, you know, this is the order, but it won't, it'll feed information into future drilling because uh, you've got to manage oil and gas fields, right? It's not like mining. You've got to manage these things. You yeah. can get it horribly wrong. So are you conscious of the market component versus the how you would do it technically or is it? Well, absolutely. If you don't, if you don't get it right technically, then, then there's no point. So getting, getting back to what I said earlier, we want, we want to make a valid test of the petroleum system with the well that we drill. 
So that means making sure that we uh, are providing a better test of the, the ingredients that you need for a working petroleum system and putting a well in the location where we test the trap, uh, reservoir, source, and seal um, all together. So that seismic infill campaign has been uh, important for us to refine that location to make sure that we get it in the right spot. So there is always the market you know, pressure to go and drill the biggest thing around, but that is not necessarily uh, the right target to drill first up. Muzurabani though has all those ingredients and the seismic data that we're seeing um, you know, it does make it the obvious candidate to drill, and luckily, it, 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 it's um, it's pretty big and, and substantial too. Um, you know, Tullow in their exploration heydays used to take this approach where they made sure that they made a better test of the petroleum system because you don't want to walk away with any regrets and someone comes in after you and and uses that data and says, "Well, you didn't quite, uh, you know, quite drill the right prospect," or um, you know, "This is what this is what the interpretation missed." So. We, we're um, we're making sure that we we do that thoroughly and and, and um, drill the right location. Okay, you're onshore. That's good news for for costs. Um, yep. Talk, talk to me about the the, the depths that you're going to be drilling. The cost of that, more importantly, and are you funded? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the um, being onshore very very uh, cost effective compared to offshore. And just to give you an example, so. Total, who have been exploring offshore South Africa, they've made uh, a couple of discoveries there off, off, off the south coast, Brulpada and Leopard. Those are, you know, comparable in terms of the the, the volume, so around about five to six TCF. Uh, very very hostile metocean conditions in that part of the world. The first attempt that they had to abandon because of the the, the rig couldn't handle it in 2014 was 200 million dollars, and then they came back. In, uh, in 2018 and, and re-drilled it for $150 million. We are going to be drilling onshore, similar size target, uh, slightly bigger, 8.2 TCF uh, and, and 250 million barrels of condensate. And that cost estimate is around about 12 million US uh, plus the MOB and DMOB, which let's call it 2 million each way. So the, the, the risk versus reward and the size of the prize for outlay is, is is fantastic and that's why it's such an attractive opportunity and why I, I liked it um, from a from a technical perspective because it had been dearest by mobile but also the, the sheer size of it um, and ability to, to chase something material for a very uh, small amount of money relatively speaking on the gas terms so and again we're focused on conventional resources so um, the, the the properties that we're chasing conventional uh, reservoir properties. Uh, we've measured the, the reservoir up the surface through the outcrop, fantastic porosity and permeability, uh, and, and the depths of the primary target. So we've got, as I said, we've got five stack targets. The, the shallowest is around about 800 to 1,000 metres beneath the surface. And then the primary target, which is the upper angua alternations member, this lower Triassic unit that I, I spoke of earlier, that top structure is around about 2,700 metres and we'll, 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 we'll test the, the, the planned TDs around about three and a half, four thousand meters. So we're not chasing anything outrageous. No, no. Okay. No, that's fine. Um, and the, the answer of, are you funded for that? So we, we're funded for the long leads and now we're going into, um, into the drilling phase. So we're, we're at the moment we are securing the rig and that'll be done, uh, fairly shortly. And, um, 
ordering the long leads and, and getting ready for the campaign in um, in the first half of next year. On the funding side of things, we've got a two-track uh, approach. Uh, initially, when we started this project, we were a much, uh, much smaller company, you know, sort of 15, $20 million market cap company, trying to fund um, a drilling cost like that, the farm out route was the obvious uh, the obvious way to go because of the look through dilution at the asset level uh, and just the sheer ability to fund it, uh, to be perfectly honest, trying to raise that sort of money as a, as a company that size was virtually impossible. As we've, as we've gotten bigger um, and, the, and the equity markets have been far more receptive to oil and gas, particularly this year, um, when we went to fund the seismic, we, we went out for six to $8 million uh, and we got bids for 33 million in three hours. And shut the books, and you know, typically that's the hardest, uh, the hardest activity to raise money for because it's not particularly sexy in the in the market size. But I think with this project, because it's it's it, it's so material and so rare to have something this size in a junior's hands and and have our equity position at, at 80%, uh, it's a very attractive proposition. And now I think people can see that we're that we're progressing and, and going through the drilling. So. The farm art process is still running uh, to bring partners in, and, and obviously I can't can't disclose anything because nothing's final. But there is there that is still ongoing, and then you know we're we're confident of either funding it entirely ourselves uh, or a combination of, of partnering and, and and a little bit of the balance of the funding. Okay. So did you say you you already have that eighty percent? Yes. So we've got eighty percent right. of the project, yep. and we're the operator. No, I just want to make sure that all, all the conditions associated have been met, and that you you are today. Yeah. And are you yeah. looking to are you looking to get more? Or do you think that's not likely? No. So we the the, the remaining twenty percent is help our local partner there. Uh, oh, the, okay. Black and Paramount. Got who was the, orig- yeah. the original license owner, and and, and we acquired an eighty percent stake in it. Okay, got it, got it. And and that's that's a I know in, I know a little bit about what South Africa was. What was the case in in Zimbabwe? That it's twenty percent is normal number, is it? No. So so again, that, that that's one of the reforms that's been brought in by government. So they um, there, there used to be a fifty one percent mandated either government partner or local partner, but that was. Uh, that was rescinded in okay. early 2018 as one of the you know the first acts of reform that the new government brought in because they realised that it was stifling investment. So that 20%, uh, the, our local partner was the original license holder, uh, an applicant, and so we we acquired that 80%. Right. Okay. So, you, but you could maybe buy that some more from them yeah, if we you could. wanted to. Right. Okay. So I just want to make sure what's possible, what's not. Yeah. Okay. Und- understood. Yeah. And they are they fully carried? So they so they carry through the expiration phase. Right. Till when? Uh, till final investment decision. Okay. Okay. Fine. Understood. Um, now, you've, you, you've we've listened to the story. I appreciate it. Um, it's a nice sort of, you know, a helicopter view of, of the story. But you want to start telling this to new audiences. I noticed uh, OTC listing. Um, Africa is typically, you know, well, it's typically better understood in in London than perhaps um, North America. I mean, what what are you doing in terms of listings? Yeah, so we're listed here in the AS, uh, on the ASX, and that's yeah. our primary listing. Mm-hmm. We're we're just completing our listing on the OTC, and that has been a, a very interesting market recently. Uh, I think for for the uh, Canadian viewers, they'll be familiar with a company called Recon Africa, who are listed there, and. Um, have done spectacularly well in that, and at a similar stage of maturity as we are uh, in the program, but 
they're, they're capped at um, over a billion dollars and we're capped at, at 80 million. Um, and they're exploring just down the Rift Basin from us in, in Namibia. Uh, so the OTC, I, I think, has been a natural um, a natural progression. It's it's a fairly straightforward listing process and, and, um, and not too much of a burden from a, uh, a, a compliance, or additional burden from compliance. There are a number of other ASX companies um, have gone that route, 88 Energy, uh, and, and they, you know, again, huge, huge volumes in their stock in, in that, uh, during that drilling period when they, um, you know, were turning over hundreds of millions of dollars uh, a day. And so it, it is a market that is receptive to, to oil and gas stocks, I, I think, no matter where they're located, whether it's Africa or, or the North Slope or, uh, or anywhere else. Um, London, we have looked at uh, before, but it is, um, look, it is a, uh, a more difficult process and you've got to come to London for the right reasons, I think. And um, if we're not going to be raising money there, then there's really, you know, very little point, I think, in enlisting in, uh, in London for us at the moment. That, that may come later on, you know, post-drilling when, um, when we need potentially bigger licks of capital because, you know, we don't need a huge amount for, for the drilling program. So it's... Um, we haven't seen London as a uh, as a must do for us. Previously, we we thought that it was a a more natural home. Okay, no, that's interesting. I, th- I think the US, you're right. You know, they invest in what you know, oil and gas, they know, um, and it's good for good for liquidity, uh, possibly even in 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 on the ASX as well. Uh, yeah, London's getting back there, but I don't don't think it's quite there on the oil and gas front. But um, some good good noises coming out of it. Um, brilliant. Scott, I enjoyed that. Um, learned a lot about what you're trying to achieve and the way that you're going about it. Um, appreciate you coming on. Um, stay in touch. Let, let us know um, perhaps when you start drilling. That'll be exciting. Yeah, and I, and I think we've got a couple of things uh, coming up, which would be sort of pre-drill, which would, and uh, maybe once the seismic uh, interpretation is finished and we can kind of run through, um, yeah, love to. run through where that sits and what the portfolio uh, looks like ultimately and what, what if we're going to be drilling. Yeah, I no, appreciate that. Look, thanks for your time today. Um, have a good rest of the week. We'll speak soon. Matt, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to be on the show um, and just want to leave you with um, with a few thoughts uh, going in. Uh, we're leading into uh, a high-impact drilling campaign and uh, one that's going to be very closely watched. We're drilling one of the biggest conventional global targets um, globally and that will be uh, in the first half of 2022. Very, very cheap onshore drill, uh, only 12 million for and an absolutely enormous prize, which is 8.2 trillion cubic feet and 247 million barrels of condensate. So enormous scale and something that's going to be very closely watched.